Hey everybody, welcome to the Growing with Fishes podcast. This, I'm Steve. <laughs> I'm Marty. You got me again, Steve. Good bongy. Start it up every time. <laughs> and uh, happy 420 to everybody. Um, this will be a pretty awesome episode. We have. Um, oh shoot, we're looping here. Okay, now we're all fixed. Last audio issue. Sorry, trying to do a, a podcast from a, with new laptop equipment. It's always a little bit challenging, even though we haven't gotten everything figured out. So, happy 420 to everybody. It's exciting. Um, I had a. Uh, yeah, got my 420 buds there. Yeah, I got my, uh, my 420 bag of weed. That's right. And my ball of charis. Mm, look at that big ball of charis. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> you gotta talk here. You were you were. In focus. Oh yeah, I forget. It switches back and forth. There you go. A little platinum delight. Nice. It won't focus. Oh well. Let's try this. That looks pretty purple. How cold were you getting that at night? Um, well, that was from the outdoor run last year, so okay. not not overly cool, but later it probably got, I don't know, maybe down to like 45 or so mm -hmm. later in the season. It went pretty late, too. I think I cut it down like, uh, uh, I don't know, I'd have to look. That's actually one of the things that I like about doing videos, though, is that I can go back and see when I did stuff instead of have to remember. But if I remember right, it was right uh, right towards the end of October, so it went pretty late. Very cool. So what do you got going on? I saw you were doing some new building. But yeah, I set up my front porch system again. I take it down in the wintertime because the sun goes on the other side of the house, so there's not really, a, um, not really much light out there, and it's not covered. So um, actually, <laughs> I used to have a hot tub that, um, that would sit there. And uh, we kind of quit using it, weren't really doing anything with it. So um, moved it out of the way and uh, and set up a, a system there last year. Didn't, <clears throat> it's kind of nice just to have a system on the front porch. And I just grow um, fruits and vegetables in it. We had strawberries and blueberries and raspberries and all kinds of different stuff. There's video of it on, the, on my YouTube from last year. And then uh, this year, instead of doing the two half barrels, um, I redid it with a full, a full bed across there, and uh, and I like it a lot. I had a little workbench in between, which was kind of nice before, in between the two barrels. But uh, I do, I do, especially like the look of it. It's very, it's a nice clean look in the, the what is it, the Ultra Skim, I think F FGC is that what it's called, something like that. Whatever that liner is called, I forget. Ultra Skim. Yeah, it's got some other. I think it's FGC after it too. Ultra Skim F. GC oh, they have like a new one now. It's supposed to be thinner, I think, right? Is mm -hmm. it is? Yeah. It is it is pretty thin and it's still still really durable. Um I didn't have any issues with like I even dropped a two by four on it <coughs> once and uh um didn't really didn't really make a difference at all. Doesn't really seem stretchy. It's still pretty pliable. But it can be a little bit difficult to fold the corners in just to get them in the right spot. It's not, it's not like your just rubber liner that you would buy at Lowe's or something like that. That's, you know, that's just going to form fit to whatever. 
so getting a fold the corners folded over is really about the only thing that can be kind of a pain about it but um other than that it worked really well so i'm pretty excited for that um put the raspberry back in it <clears throat> i just uh um, for the winter time, I just pull those out, put them in pots when they, after they go into hibernation, whatever you call it. I'm sure it's something else in the plant world. But uh, once it um, goes dormant for the winter, um, I just set them in pots until they start getting little sprouts, and then I throw them back in the system somewhere. So I don't even keep them in there throughout the winter time. <laughs> Very cool. What about you? What do you got? Um, I've just been working on doing a bunch of um, planning, doing 3D renderings of um, our first farm, trying to lay out you know, how much plumbing we need, how much bamboo we need, how much this, that, and the other we need, working out materials and um, working on uh, another company that might possibly be working with us on import up to Canada and um, just working on some, some stuff like that. We're kind of in a holding pattern until... Uh, until we get the rest of our uh here back on the rest of our licensing so it's just you know <laughs> can work on the one property that we're allowed to work on at the moment as far as what's licensed and the rest at the moment we're kind of waiting again because of the change in government so until we hear when the new submission date is it's kind of a headache so yeah can you start i mean i assume you can start building out systems right you just probably oh, yeah can't. i can build everything we just can't plant them out much <laughs> Right. We can plan a, we can, we can plan a little bit. Like we have some others going right now and stuff that are just started, um, and uh, we've been trying to, you know, acquire certain genetics. It's half the reason why I've been running around like a maniac on this whole island, um, <laughs> and uh, and setting up a little uh, mother system, you know, with, which is within the Jamaican legal plant count here. Which memory serves me right, it's like six or eight. I don't know. We have it written down somewhere whatever we just we do treat it the same as colorado we just make a copy of whatever the rules are we post them in a little folded envelope in each room so that if there's any ever question with anybody you know the rules right there exactly what the law is if you if you have a legal grow in the u.s that's really good to do is keep a copy of the law in there and then keep a copy of your licensing and then if anyone ever wants to question you both of them are right there there's no there's no challenge there's no anything if for some reason some you know there's an issue you got both copies you know you got everything you need there um, and that's just standard practice. If you're doing any kind of larger grow legally, you know, it's really got to do that. So, but um, yeah, so we're just kind of building and waiting, waiting on my shipment of bamboo, which is going to be fun. We're going to be building a bunch of, um, uh, uh, basically there's going to be like a fence of bamboo growing, you know, um, medicinal, uh, medicinal herbs and cooking herbs. Um, the help is like a plant, an insect barrier, you know, between the different, um, outdoor grows. Um, so that'll be kind of neat too. You know, we'll be going cilantro and cilantro and rosemary and a bunch of different types of basil. There's a bunch of different types of cooking herbs that they don't really have much here, but you can get the seeds for them, but nobody seems to know much about them as far as the culinary stuff. So we're going to be doing a bunch of that. Plus, you know, the hotels and stuff, we can at least sell some of that to that and then help, you know, supplement. We have a little soup kitchen we're trying to get off the ground too so we can use the the herb supplements uh sales from that to supplement the uh the soup kitchen and stuff we're working on a uh some different projects it's going to be pretty neat when it's all done yeah that, that sounds awesome you mentioned you were looking for some genetics there in the island did you get the i guess two questions did you bring any genetics with you were you able to do that or 
um, are what uh, what genetics are you looking for on the island? No, well, I know that there's some people have managed to get some high CBD and some other genetic stuff on the island, which you can acquire here, um, you know, from them. But no, I, I mean, I didn't bring anything down. There's it's pretty hard at the moment to legally bring cannabis seeds from the U.S. to Jamaica. So uh, I don't even right. know if that's even legally possible at the moment, to be honest with you. So um, I figured you know, it wasn't. I thought maybe no, but there's a yeah, couple no. different places you can go on the island. Like we went up to Orange Hill, which is not the safest place on the island, um, and managed to go talk to some real, you know, hang out with some real growers and and go to the market up there and get a hold of some some harder to find genetics um, on the island and see some plants that they came from. You know what I mean? At the same time, so I know they weren't BSing us um, and all that. So that was that was pretty neat. Um, that was definitely like a once in a lifetime experience that uh, the next time we go up there, I'm going to hopefully be able to get some more video footage of just, I was told explicitly the first time not to bring a camera because of where we were going. So, but right. yeah, it'll be, it'll right. be pretty dope. Um, but yeah, actually the, one of my business partners down here is actually from that area and has a lot of family there. So, um, you know, we can, I can go up there pretty readily. It's just, you got to be a little more, a little more likely to get picked on if you're a tourist or not from Jamaica and that part of the island, which most of the island's pretty safe unless you really go looking in some areas, but that happens to be one of them that's not the friendliest to tourists. Yeah, that was one of the places they, they talked about a lot in that Strain Hunters video, too. Yeah, they never mentioned that part, though. That it's not really they don't mention the, the island sketchy neighborhood or any of that, but they, no, they, and, they talk about Orange Hill a lot in that. Um, I haven't oh, watched yeah. it in a while, but I remember them talking about it as being like, you know, the primary place to go for the good stuff. Yeah, it tends to be where the, well, originally it was where you could get the good land race Jamaican, the like nice pink stuff. Mm -hmm. um, now it's just, that's where all the real good growers are on that part of the island pretty much is where the best growers are for them. Not, you know, there's some other great growers on the island, but if you're looking for the best genetics and stuff, that's where you're going to go to, to meet right. you know, the guys that are bringing them in from Europe or wherever. Now, if I remember here, right, in that, in that video, they were doing a lot, a lot of their crosses were just basically plants that they put outdoor, right? I mean, that's not really. Yeah. So it, it's really facility type stuff. Yeah. I mean, they'll have like 1500 phenomes in a field you know there's no consistency as far as individual plant structure which is a little bit of a shame but at the same time you know there's all the different every every plant you look at is completely different which is really cool but yeah. you know that's if you're trying to get to a commercial crop you're gonna have to set aside a small area for your mothers that you can lock up keep it in a little locked up greenhouse with your grow lights and stuff and then have your 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 outdoor crop you know outside of that and then this way if you have a hurricane or something you can throw boards up around your mothers and everything and at least save your genetics you know what i mean so that's part of what we're building right now is a bunch of little solar setups to keep the mothers going because you know the shortest the days ever get is about 10 and a half 11 hours in a day so we don't really need a beefy system to keep some mothers alive or even even clones going. You know, we only need to keep it on an extra six hours. I don't need a system that's, that's totally ridiculous to do a six-hour light cycle. You know what I mean? And the wind here we have, especially at our location here in, on uh, close to Montego Bay, is, is really good. I mean, we have constant five, mile, five to ten mile an hour winds pretty much always. So we're um, 
wind generators are going to be a large part of this particular farm. We have another one that is a little less wind, but a really good sun exposure. So we're going to be doing more solar there. Um, but yeah, I mean, we actually, we have another farm we picked up too. So if we get all of our licensing, we're now up to about 1800 acres. <clears throat> yeah. What's your projected time to get, you know, like, it, you know, I know you got to wait for your licensing, but let's say that you were, you had your licensing, you know, tomorrow, how long do you think it's going to take you guys to build out 1800 acres? Uh, I mean, to build out the whole thing, we're probably looking at at least two or three years. It's just a, that'd be a huge, huge project, but you know, we'd be, get, we'd have two huge farms online by the end of the year. Um, we, we kind of prioritized which farms are more feasible. And then right now, basically what I'm building right now is a training facility for everyone I need to work on the bigger farms. That's why we're setting it up as like a little, as a B and B here. But in the beginning, it's just going to be basically my like managers and, and harder and my workers that are going to come stay up here where it's a little bit nicer, have a nice time, learn the ins and outs of aquaponic growing on a smaller scale on a, you know, where they can, you know, where it's not as cumbersome to move around and all that and then once they get that you know once we can give them kind of a crash course and all that you know i'll handle all the nutrient stuff we have a one of the universities down here is going to be partnering up with us to do all the tissue samples sampling all the nutrient sampling all the um the water sampling and all that they're doing all that with us and in um we're going to be doing this whole uh, project on aquapon i actually working with the only other guy that's doing any kind of large level um, aquaponic cannabis stuff. Um, uh, and, uh, we're both working together to do an anonymous, like, um, database of aquaponic growers and their nutrient profiles of the water and tissue samples and stuff. And, um, you know, we're asking anyone that works with us to, it's a little, little additional part of our thing, but you know, if they were asking them, if they work with us that, you know, they anonymously submit their, their data just for that, we can, you know, continue to perfect, you know, further the aquaponic cannabis production stuff and just hey, maybe somebody's onto something that they aren't. That's totally cool. No one wants to take away your edge and all that. You know, it, it'll be a business XYZ and maybe you have a, have a one or two year delay on, on data re release so that you have a good market edge. But, you know, overall, your data will get inputted into the nutrient averages and everything else and, and really help dial this in because, in the, you know, the future of of all of our plant production really is aquaponics because you can produce, you know, with the plant scraps, you can feed, you know, 75 to 80% of uh, the insects you need to, or worms, whichever one you're using, or we use a rotation to keep right. your fish alive. And then you're able to fit, you know, the, you make a much more self-sustaining system. Um, and, and not only that, you know, look at the, the cost savings, you know, I know on my at home right now on my cannabis grow, I'm spending about 40, 35 to forty percent of what I was running uh, hydronutrients, and that you know just strictly a nutrient difference between the fish food and supplemental stuff. Not to mention I can grow all my vegetables and stuff off the side lights. You know I have uh, horizontal towers hanging off the side now, and my uh, my roommate's growing all this kitchen herbs hanging off in between my last grow bed and my fish tank. You know what I mean? You're not gonna do that with a hydro system, you know, and have that kind of freedom or, or you can grow everything from lettuce to peppers and everything in between without the lettuce taste and like creating you know, something weird or something. You know what I mean? So it yeah. just gives you much more flexibility. Not to mention, you know, the whole idea that you're using a much heavier microbial load and a lower nutrient load is gonna give you better flavor in the long run. You're gonna get better, you know, less chance of getting that weird chemical flavor, the weird chemical taste of your nutrients. 
Right. You know, I grow obviously a lot of fruits and vegetables in my systems just because I, you know, I like to be able to draw that nitrogen out of the system and use it for something that I can actually eat. Um, anyway, it's just a more, you know, for, for just a home system, it, it makes tons of sense. I mean, there's no, you know, like you're saying, like, I mean, even, even when the, uh, like right now when my canopy is pretty well filled out, um, you still get plenty of light that comes through to be able to grow like microgreens is a great one to be able to grow anything. I know we, we talk about those a lot. You get the added benefit of popping all those seeds in your bed is just going to give you more natural enzymes, you know, similar to like a sprouted CT. Hold on a second. I got a door. It's about to break if I don't do something about it. <laughs> all right. Go ahead. Apologize. So uh, like I was saying, you know, you get the op opportunity to be able to take advantage of both your excess nitrogen and your excess lighting and create food out of it. And so I think that's definitely, um, you know, a great thing to note is that, you know, you don't have to separate your plants. And obviously hydro growers, they do separate a lot of that stuff. They, again, most of the time in hydro, you want to keep most of your microbial life absent from the system. You don't want other plants in there. There are some exceptions, like especially that you now that you have more, um, you know, no-till growers that are setting up no-till pots or you have SIPs, which are, I don't know if you've looked look much in the SIP systems, but I mean, they're basically, you know, not that much different than a dual root zone system. You're still muted, by the way. Still muted. It's like a bottom, like a bottom feeding system, right? Yeah, basically there's a water reservoir that sits at the bottom um, that simulates a water table and then there's soil up above it and the soil doesn't go all the way down to the water just like in a dual road zone system. So it's really not not that much different other than they just have a little breather tube that goes up the side that you pour more water and nutrients in. But it, it does focus on um, most of the time on microbial life also. So you're most of the time you're just feeding raw nutrients and then um, top feeding every once in a while. You should check them out. It's um, The PFA group is doing a big, big thing on them right now. There's lots of information on is that something like the octopod or something? You're breaking up. I can hear you. Is that something like the octopod? Um, I haven't seen that. I don't know. Okay. What is it? So the octopod is kind of like a fabric or smart pot that's on top of a um, little reservoir that has a little float, and you can top it off. It's just a. It's kind of like a dual root, similar to a dual root zone. Um, yeah very very similar only they're running it with hydronutrients so um, yeah i think that's the same principle they call it you know they talk about uh, what's that term they use all the time i can't remember now bio by i can't remember it now but basically it's imitating the natural natural life cycle um so that uh, basically the idea is is that you have that layer of soil and you have the water table that would be underneath the layer of soil that the plants can reach down and get water from there anytime they want to be able to, but still have their, their root system up above and get exposed to oxygen. And you can obviously still, you know, water nutrients into the top. And I'm sure they recommend you do that. I don't know a ton about it, but I do know that it's pretty much to me, seems like dual root zone setup um, with a, with hydronutrients. So it sounds like it's the same thing as what you're describing. Yeah. So actually let's see if I can pull up, picture that I used. I have a really awesome picture that I got shared. 
there's three different types of root structures and there's a particular type of root that goes down deep and wants to be more in the water and then your upper your shallower roots are much hairier and fuzzier and do a much better job of picking up nutrients especially micros and macros um, your deeper roots pick up iron um, particularly in water um, they do pick up some other things but that's kind of their primary purpose uh, yes yeah, so you have your tap roots which are your kind of your main bigger root then you have your fibrous roots and then you have your uh, adventitious or adventitious roots um, which are um, can form another uh, any other part of the plant. So if you have like spider plants that have the roots that are coming off that are just off in the air, those are adventitious. Um, you have your fibrous roots, which are the real hairy ones that you see shallower in your root zone, which is like in a dual root zone. It, that's where your predominantly your where your soil layer is all your uh, fibrous roots, and then your tap roots are the ones that go down into the water and then spread out there. And the ends of them are fibrous roots, but again, they're primarily your tap roots that are water and iron seeking. And pota potassium is another one that they like to pick up in, in the deeper part. Yeah, that sounds cool. You should look up the um, the sips when you have some time just to check it out. And uh, um, yeah, I think they're it's like I said, it's pretty much the same thing, um, except for you. In this case, you don't have a um, or I guess dual root zone in aquaponics is basically the same thing except for you have a water exchange that happens as opposed to just topping the water off from time to time. Yeah, and the biggest thing you'll see with the dual root zone aquaponics system, especially when it comes to cannabis, is you know, with a dual root zone, you can actually run a fully continuously recirculating system with you know every other method, hydro or even some aquaponic people do the decoupled. That's not a fully recirculating system. They're using it as a base for the nutrient solution, but it's, you know, it's basically just using it as a base for a hydroponic solution, as far as I'm concerned, because they're dumping and replacing it semi-regularly and restarting over, you know. And that's one of the biggest things that you have to remember when you're dosing, especially for aquaponics, is that you know you only ever want to dose for about 25% of what your target nutrient level is, because even 30%. Um, you know, you don't want to do like for, typically for hydro, you know, most of your, your dosage recommendations are to go from zero to 50% of your nutrient recommendation. And they'll say, well, you can go up to double the dosage or whatever. Well, yeah, the double the dosage is actually nine times out of 10 what they in an ideal world think a perfect plant would uptake, but you have to vary from strain and everything else. And that's something that you really want to consider, you know. That's why you'll see a lot of them will say to start off with a half dose, but you can double dose or whatever. It's a really common method with hydroponic dosing. Whereas with a lot of your aquaponic nutrients, you know, you do need to be careful because if you're using a hydroponic, and we touch on this when we get to the, is it safe for aquaponics section, you know, be careful. Don't follow the directions, the dosing directions for a hydroponic system. If you're using it, that's great. If you find a product that's aquaponic safe, that's great. But you need to be adjusting your dosages to maybe using about a quarter of what they're telling you to for an aquaponic system is basically what I'm trying to get at um, in order to be on the safe side. So say, for example, uh, a CalMag product is, well, CalMag's a bad one. Um, <laughs> Let's not go CalMag. Yeah. Um, Never go full CalMag. 
Well, Epsom salt. That's that's a good one. Uh, right. Epsom salt. You, know, you you could always start off with that, and um, you know, start off with twenty five. You know, twenty five percent of what it tells you to dose on a hydroponic, you know, dosage, because you have to remember that you have to maintain much lower nutrient levels in the aquaponic system. Because if you start getting real high on your numbers, you're going to get everything all out of whack. And the, all, the reason why aquaponics works just as efficiently as hydroponics is you're running lower nutrient levels, but you're able to stabilize them and keep them there a lot better than you otherwise would be uh, in, in a hydroponic system because you're able to achieve that ionic balance because you're running everything at lower levels. Stuff isn't fighting each other as much. You're not getting a huge ion exchange between everything, uh, and you're not getting a huge imbalance in your salt levels and everything else. So... You don't get all these, you know, huge imbalances. The one benefit to running aquaponics is that you're basically running everything in like a a, a low dose worm tea. You know, basically what the fish are making is a, a fish tea. You know, right. It's, it's very similar. And then you add something like worm tea, and you add some supplemental minerals to it, and and you get a really really good nutrient. Now you might have to dose two or three times a week more than you would in a in a traditional system, but you're getting the added benefit of running much lower levels. But maintaining them rock solid, which is exactly all the plant needs, and you're getting much better flavor. Like I'm sure you'll attest the flavor for aquaponic cannabis, especially if you do the nutrients right, compared to anything else, is just a joke. It's so much better. It's so much yeah. better. It only compares to some of the best soil grown that I've ever had. Maybe, you know, in terms yeah, of flavor same. and richness and earthiness and everything else. The same stuff that I showed you earlier from the outdoor last year is definitely by far the best tasting weed that I've I've ever smoked and smoking it right now. And um, you know, it's been cured for quite a while now in glass jars and I've just <clears throat> you know, done a really good job with it. And so I think that's definitely um, you know, definitely accurate. I think that, you know, we've talked about this before in terms of that. And most of the strains that I grow do turn out really well, but for this right here, the only uh, the only stuff that I added was you know essentially worm tea or worm juice, whatever you want to call it. When I was doing this, uh, I started doing I was started out doing the aerated tea, which was adding um, you know basically just uh, adding water to it and aerating it. And then you know I guess I sort of came to the conclusion that um, you know it's already going to get aerated in the system. Um, to a certain extent, and I didn't really see a huge benefit in terms of doing that. So I really only did that probably about four or five times, and I was adding about, um, I would say about a half gallon of worm tea to the system about every two or three days. <clears throat> and um, that's the only thing that I added to that at all. I didn't, didn't add anything else. And that's all just um, fruit broken down in the in the worm tea and uh in terms of that it may like obviously the outdoor takes a little bit longer i would say that overall flowering time you know they didn't finish up till the end of october but one of the things that you mentioned was how little it costs i think essentially all you're looking at for the cost there for nutrient wise is you know obviously my food scraps don't cost me anything um I already had worms from my previous grows, so, but even still, I guess if you wanted to count that, I think a pound of worm castings is like maybe 15 bucks at the farmer's market, like at most. <clears throat> and, uh, and then the power to run the pump, which is maybe like four or five bucks 
and then I grew, you know, like two pounds of this. <laughs> so in terms of like um, quality versus cost or efficiency, however you want to measure efficiency, whether it's power efficiency, whether it's nutrient efficiency or any of those, I think that um, it's clearly more sustainable than uh, I guess other growing solutions that I've ran into. And uh, I think it's considerably less work like than doing hydro or anything else. Like once everything is set up and maintained, um, you know, feeding the fish and dropping in some worm tea, you know, really doesn't take up that much time. Oh yeah, your your like labor per day is definitely lower than a lot of other methods for sure. Um, you know, I, I spend a little bit of time in my grow every day, but you know, it's I'm not having there having to spend you know an hour changing up my reservoir and then dialing in my nutrients again, then testing them and waiting ten minutes and test. I don't have to deal with any of that crap anymore. You know, I don't have to worry. Like, yeah, I have to top water them twice a week, but so what? That's no big deal. It's no different than watering anything else. You know, so but I do things a little bit different than you do, but it's still not a not a huge difference as far as that goes. Right, and it's just um, you know I get that pushback a lot. You know that it um, you know that it's a lot of work in order to be able to get good product out of it, and I just don't understand the argument because of how much work it takes in hydro to get good quality out of it too. I mean, you can't just put the plant in some water and let it grow and expect to be able to get any kind of results out of it. You know, like you go buy a bunch of bottles and you come back and you mix different stuff together and you make your little concoction and then you change out your reservoir every few weeks and you know like there's a lot of different things that uh you know some people take them all the way down and even clean out the inside um of the reservoirs on a on a regular basis and you know i've i haven't done that in you know i think three years now you know what i mean like because you're not running a sterile system right you know, and we've talked about that in hydro before too. And so, you know, I, I just don't see it as that much different. And then obviously if you throw in an automatic fish feeder, you know, like you don't even really have to be there to get sort of like a, a good baseline of food across. But, uh, you you're know, I, I, don't, I totally disagree with automatic fish feeders unless you're on vacation or away from the weekend. I think like you should not rely on an automatic fish feeder as your regular source of feed. And I'll explain why. I know it sounds kind of dumb, and it's like, well, why would you not want to automate something that you can, like, forget about? I don't do it either, is, but mostly just because, I, you know, like, that's, like, the part I enjoy. You know, like, I like going out there and tossing the fish out, or tossing the food out to the fish and, and doing that. So, so this is the thing, though. So you can look at the responsiveness of your fish and get a gauge on, like, you know, if you have really high nitrates or really high ammonia or this, that, or the other reason because flow stopped or this, you know, whatever your fish are going to all stay to the bottom. They're going to behave differently. You know, you don't even have to go test your water. Yeah, you're going to test your water, but it's going to be a good early indicator that, something, hey, something's not going on right. Or, you know, the other, this is my other argument, or a huge argument that I make, all, and I've, I've been in this argument many times. This is your main input to your whole system. All of your nutrients, or not all of your nutrients, the bulk of your nutrients all come from this input. Would you automate a hydroponic system and let it go willy-nilly completely un unwatched yeah some people do auto dosers and stuff like that but nobody lets them run long term no one's running them 365 days a year without tinkering with them 
You know what I mean? All you do with a, uh, an auto feeder is, is refill it. The, the thing is, is that if that thing clogs or doesn't work for a day, that's your whole input to the whole system. Your, your nutrients could fall off or, and it's your fish are fine. They can start for two, two to four weeks without much of an issue, but you're going to notice a huge slowdown on your plant growth because your, your nitrogen is going to just drop off the, the cliff. So, you know, something that takes 15 to 30 seconds a day to me and is that crucial this seems ridiculously silly to me that you would not take the 15 to 30 seconds a day and put your hand out and see what's going on. So even if I ran a huge, you know, um, you know, later on when, when we have all these different farms going on, we'll use that as an example. I, I want someone I know or me hand feeding all the different tanks each day, you know, morning and evening or whatever the schedule ends up being. I don't want any of that automated. I want that done by hand. And for the reasons that I just explained, the fish's reaction is going to be an early indicator of a chemistry issue and the fact that that's my main input. I need to, you know, if I show them this many ounces of, of stuff that goes in, that's how much I want in. The, the automated one is not going to do that kind of, you know, accurate, you know, dosing or anything. Yeah, it'll do turn the corks through this many rotations. But, you know, depending on how it falls in there, that could be a big range. If it's a clumpier piece, or it gets moldy, it sticks together, they fail, the timers stop working, the batteries stop working, the power stops working, this, that, or the other. They fail. It's a failure point that can be easily solved by a human being. And it's crucial to your whole system. You know, would you completely automate all of your nutrient dosing without any kind of, like, feedback? I mean, it just seems crazy, you know. The other thing is, is say you're testing your nitrates and your nitrates are going up and up and up. You know, how are you going to turn, go in and tell your, your auto timer not to feed it, you know, more often? You can, you know, you can turn them down or whatever, but at the same time, it's nothing like saying, hey, cut the dosage back by half for, for a week and let it balance back out or this, that, or the other. You know what I mean? Like, it's just so much better to have that kind of, it's one of the few components I feel like is important enough to not leave automated. Yeah, if you're getting on a ludicrous scale, maybe you can dial it in, but you're also going to have the testing equipment that's giving you the live feedback at that point. You see what I'm saying? Once you get yeah, to that scale, there's a, a cost, you know, a cost analysis where you're you're going to have a high enough investment to afford the kind of feedback you need from the system. I think that there's a lot of value in just having to go out and spend that much time in the garden. Uh, you know, it's really not that much time, first of all. Like, you can go out and just grab some fish food and throw it out, watch the reaction. Then at least you have that that sort of feedback about the system like you're talking about. Even if you're doing your testing, it's not like you can go back and ask the fish feeder how the fish reacted the last time that you fed them. Whereas if it's an actual person doing it, then you can go back to that person and you can say, hey, Bill, you know, when you've been feeding the fish the last couple of days, have you noticed anything different? And then you'll be able to get, get feedback from that. So it definitely makes sense. And I, I've, <clears throat> I've considered doing it, um, going on vacation, but I've always just had people stop by and feed my pets, as it were. They just happen to be fish also. If you're just going away for temporary or whatever, and it's not, that's totally fine. Like 100% pro auto timers, auto feeders and all that. But you should not, that should not be your normal, reliable input to the system, is my point. Right, right, which makes sense, that's for sure. So do you want to um, do, you wanna do your uh, new segment that you were talking about, the um, stuff you can use in aquaponics? 
Oh yeah, yeah. You had some stuff you picked up at the store, and and we yeah, had a new so... segment called, you know, can I use this in aquaponics? If you guys have any questions, I know we'll we'll do the two that you did, and then we have some questions that people wrote in. Um, so I just <clears throat> I just went to my local uh, grow shop here in town. I buy I like to buy stuff from local grow shops, um, just because it's not really that much more money. Like my hydrogen maybe cost me an extra twenty bucks over the course of you know two or three bags. And they keep the stuff in stock. I can drive in and pick it up, and uh, and I like to keep stuff local when I can. It doesn't cost me that much more, and you know, money turns over so much well when you spend it um, locally, and especially for for guys that are trying to keep stuff around for for like-minded people, I suppose. Um, so I do. When I was in there to get the hydrogen, I decided I would look around and say, okay, well, you know, what stuff can I find in here that I would put into my aquaponic system if I was going to dose it with something? So. I picked up a couple of things. These are the, like I said, the raw microbes. You guys can see that. I think 12 or 13 bucks. Yeah, 13 bucks there. And uh, it's got a whole list here on the back of the different beneficial bacteria you can add and it's just in powder form. And uh, what I did is I just added some of this to the worm juice that comes out of my worm bin that I normally dose into the system anyway. So I just added some into that right before. And then the other thing that I picked up was this uh, maxi crap. And uh, you can see here on the back, it also gives you a handy little deal. It's 0017. So obviously, that's a pretty good indicator of, of what's in it. But for the most part, these are, um, you know, this is stuff that I've seen people use um, on a regular basis, both for no-till gardens and uh, um, so basically, you're just feeding kelp to your microbes. So those are definitely two things that you can use in your system if you see those in your local grow shop. I didn't really see much else that I was terribly interested in putting into my system. This company, Raw, did have like some different iron supplements and different things like that um, that uh, appeared to be fine, but um, those were just the two that I picked up um, yeah, to be able to yeah. check that out. I've used some of the raw products. Actually, back when I used to work for Aquaponics Source, they sent us, when I very first started there, um, they sent us a whole batch of stuff to test out. Um, and we tested all of it, and we didn't find any of it to be non-fish safe, anything that we ever tested from them. Um, and then the MaxiCrop has, has been long sold, both in Australia and the U.S. for aquaponics systems. And that's a, that's a great product. Um, one thing I was going to touch on earlier was, um, so if you're using microbes or the um, the seaweed, and you're using it for compost sea brewing, um, the reason why you want to brew it for 24 to 48 hours is um, not so much to alter the nutrients in the water particularly, but what you're doing is you're giving a confined, um, you know, safe space to brew out the, your good microbes that are in there, and they're not having to compete with those other microbes that you have in the system as far as, you know, there might be three to five different microbes that all feed on the XYZ same food source that your particular beneficial microbe might also do, uh, might also feed on. But if you dump a huge population into there that you've been breeding out in a bucket for 24 to 48 hours, sometimes even longer, sometimes some brews are even up to 72 hours, um, you know, you're basically giving a safe cultured place for those particular microbes you're trying to get going to have, you know, very little competition aside from the food source and the, you know, their initial seed spawn that you're putting in there. And that's the, I guess, the biggest reason to, to brew 
them longer, but if you have a really good established bacteria colony, that becomes less and less important. Right. And so, you know, I, that's pretty much the way I look at it is I don't, and having done it both ways, I can't say that I noticed a big difference either way in, in terms of uh, production. And I think that the key is if you have a healthy system that you're adding it into, that beneficial bacteria that you're adding in, that should, your system should be that safe place for it to do it. You shouldn't have a ton of competition for it in your system anyway. Now, that being said, I also add, um, added some uh, mix right to the worm bin itself so that it'll definitely have that in there also. And then um, the other thing that I don't have up here that I should have brought up here is uh, the EM1 inoculant that I have that I also That's add in, <clears throat> that I add into the worm bin itself. And then um, I have a little bucket that I keep in my kitchen that I, um, I basically treat it like a fruit fermentation bucket. So that's where all my initial banana peels and stuff go. Um, and I mix it EM, uh, EM1 and water in that bucket and it has a lid on it with a little breather hole. And then when it fills up, that's when I take it out to the worm bin outside. So that can be nice, a nice way to sort of do like a pre breakdown of your fruit before you put it into the compost. And it also gives you a place to be able to easily just put that stuff in the kitchen so that you're not tempted to just throw it away. <laughs> yeah. So that's a, that's basically the, the process that I have. Like anytime we have like bananas that go bad before they get eaten, which doesn't happen very often because we usually eat them up pretty quick, but any banana peels, um, basically any fruit scraps at all go, go into that bucket with the EM1 and water and then a little bit of labs too. It's also great to add in there. Um, when I had a batch, of, a batch still mixed up, I would put a little bit into there also to start out. So, um, yeah, so from there it goes into the worm bin. Then uh, and um, just when you water the worms, you get the water that leaches out the bottom. And uh, that's what I use. I just add it right back into the system. And, uh, yeah, works great for me. That sounds great. Pretty low maintenance. I like low maintenance. <laughs> yeah, low maintenance always is great. So we had, uh, I think we had some other questions too. Let me pull them up here. We had some questions from a guy named Kurt. I won't tell you his last name. Um, he says, uh, um, what are your thoughts on no-till dual root zone? I guess that would be more your your section and uh, maybe we both have to answer that one together and then he also another question is do you supplement any nitrogen in your soil layer and yes i do i always make sure i add some worm casings or i also make my own fish i call it fish casings where i take the solids that are separated my solid separator and take those and basically use them as worm casings and they also have a reasonably high nitrogen content um, you don't want to burn them too much and you got to remember that that nitrogen that you need in that layer is only really needed for about the first two to three weeks until that plant hits the water basically the first week or two once it hits the water and goes down into the fish water it's not pulling any more nitrogen or it, it really has no need to pull nitrogen out of that soil layer anymore so it's really all you need to supplement for for that particular growth period um but as far as the no-till dual root zone um, I do know, I think I've talked to one person so far that's been trying something like that. I don't see why that wouldn't work. I would recommend using larger pots if you were doing that. 
which would mean your spacing would be a little bit bigger, which might be an issue for people with smaller grows, but that would, you know, that would probably be my only adjustment is that maybe use something that's a lot larger because remember your soil zone is a lot smaller. So if you're trying to maintain a lot, you know, a real healthy soil zone, you're going to want to, you know, try and make it a little bit larger than you traditionally would because you're going to have to compete in the beginning with the old roots and stuff. Right. And I think that, um, you know, SIPs is probably, you know, we talked about that just a little bit ago, and that's probably about the same thing um, is, it, is what you're talking about is a no-till section for your dual root zone. And the box that they put them in is, you know, probably larger than what the pot that you would use for a dual root zone. So I don't, I don't think it's really that much different than your concept of dual root zone because you know, the idea of no-till is keeping the soil alive and full of microbes <clears throat> as opposed to just being an inert media that you can grow stuff in um, with a hydroponic solution. Basically, a lot of indoor growers that use soil, they essentially just use it as a dead medium as opposed to a living one. So, Steve, are you still there? I think we lost Steve. Are you back? Yep, we had one of our Jamaican hiccups. <laughs> so yeah, I think that the SIPs, like I was saying, is basically what, what he's talking about. And you should definitely take a look at that because, uh, you know, again, it's the, the concept of keeping your soil alive as opposed to just inert media that you're using a hydro solution to water in. It's really not that much different than like, you know, growing in cocoa or something like that, um, uh, coconut core. So. I think that uh, um, you should definitely look into SIPs. That's and the concepts are really the same: keep it full of microbial life, um, so that the soil itself stays alive as opposed to dead. And um, so I don't, I don't think that it's that much different. Anyway, I think the dual root zone is essentially the same. Um, what would you call it? Principles as no-till. So and check out SIPs. That would be my other advice to that guy is uh, if you look up the probiotic farmers Alliance, I think is what it's called mm -hmm. uh, group on Facebook. And uh, they're doing a whole study right now. Um, they just sent out a whole bunch of uh, different boxes to people where they're um, doing test grow outs of different things and sips. So uh, it's a cool group. There's definitely some egos that float around in there. So, <laughs> My advice to you is if you're a newbie in that group is just be a fly on the wall um, and pretty much assume that, uh, you know, questions will be asked and answered. And if you have something that you really want to know, uh, you know, obviously go ahead and, and ask it. But for, for the most part, people are pretty helpful in there with the exception of with a few egos. But uh, they're definitely doing.